What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Gloria Masters is a former teacher and child and adolescent therapist from Auckland, New Zealand. Over the last several decades and through her incredible professional life, she has worked deeply to change the future for our youth. But it wasn't until a few years ago that she began dedicating her life to a new mission, using her own horrific childhood experiences as a trafficked sex slave and all that came next in her healing journey to bring awareness and change to the world. We are so grateful for all of Gloria's efforts and her willingness to share today on what came next. I'm Gloria Masters. I live in New Zealand. I was born and bred in Auckland, New Zealand, which is one of our biggest cities. I am an ex-teacher, an ex-shrink, a mother, quirky, very loving and kind, but I'm the child now. I wasn't able to be for 16 years. I do speaking events. I speak about my life as a sex trafficked slave for 16 years, what that experience did to me and what I was able to emerge through. So I'm seen as a bit of a light for those who haven't yet been able to find theirs. I was born in a family as the youngest girl. From the time I was born, I was sexually, physically and emotionally abused. And that went on for 16 years. What happened through the growing up years was... I was trained by my grandmother to be the best child sex slave I could be. From the age of five, she was training me how to move, how to speak, how to act seductively around men. She would get paid a commission. And the more alluring I could be, the more money they would pay. My father first began this when I was a small toddler. It began with him, his extended family and his friends. He would lease me out to groups and gangs. I never knew at what point I would be taken somewhere or at what point my father would have people brought into the home. But he was what I call a very dangerous psychopath. I wasn't really anything to him. There was never a conversation that was had or questions that were asked by him about how are you, what's going well at school, who are your friends. I never had a father who was interested. The only interest he ever showed was in 
how well I could perform and the only comments he ever made were around my sexual performance or the work I would have to do for him. The sex parties, my father would initiate, the men would come in, they would be given a card and they would bet on me. The person that could pay the most would get first goal. So what that meant was I had to engage in the ritualistic stuff, which made me physically sick. But equally, these men were our highest political, police, legal, medical professionals. So no one was going to believe a child like me had I even tried to speak. I was also leased to a nightclub in our red light district in Auckland. On the very top floor, I was chained to a bed. This was as an 11-year-old. Men and women would come in and pay to abuse me. I was hidden up there because the general public who were downstairs in the main nightclub area wouldn't have known there was a child up there. Some of the other sex workers at the club were lovely. They were as trapped as I was. They would sneak me food. They would look out for me as much as they could. Regarding other events that took place at the nightclub, child sexual abuse materials, including videos and lots of still images, were taken. I had to engage or star in well over a 100 of those from those 16 years. So what that meant was there would be days of filming and back in those days it was the old projectors with the big round wheels and you could hear the whirring sound. But those movies that were made were a whole other objectification and cruel. It was me with adult men or me with adult women or sometimes other children would be brought in. I was taken periodically to a gang headquarters where I would be used as an initiation ceremony. One of those events was so scary that when my father came to pick me up, I was unconscious. My face was pulverized. I was so badly beaten, I was unrecognizable. His response when he woke me up, was to say back to the gang leader the following words, you may want to be careful what you do to a mate. She won't look as good for you otherwise. So when I say I'm very grateful to be alive, I mean I'm very, very grateful to be alive. I didn't actually think at times I would be. The other area of my life that was pretty horrendous was my father never gave up drugging me because no one wanted to pay money for a traumatized or frightened child. So I was actually drugged a lot. To be honest, I'm very grateful for that because the reality was just too much for me. As I was 11, I then became pubescent and I started to become pregnant. So my grandmother would perform abortions on me. I would be taken to her house. Now, of course, she didn't do it well. And one night, I thought I was going to die. They had to call the doctor. So he was able to come in and, of course, never reached any public system, but he was able to help save my life. There were many occasions where that happened, to the point where when I had my first child at 27, the doctor was giving me an internal exam. He said, oh, you've been down this path before many times, haven't you? So that's the internal scarring. 
This was allowed to happen because my mother was a really complex narcissist. I didn't factor in her life at all. In fact, I was only ever acknowledged if my behavior was out of control or I was doing something for her. For much of my young life, she was away from the family home, which gave full permission for my father to do whatever he wanted. If she was there, there was no access to her. She would shut the bedroom door. My parents separated at 11 and I got left with my father and brother. That's where my nightmare really began. My brother became my father's mini-me. He was four and a half years older than me. I was tortured. And what that meant was I wasn't allowed to eat unless they decided I could. They would tie me up like a dog. They would strip me naked. I was not allowed to speak. I could communicate in dog sounds. I had to eat like a dog off the floor. I was whipped, beaten, tortured, told that if I ever had children, they would be puppies. My brother became even worse than my father. When my father was at work and it was he and I home, his friends would come over and then it would begin all over again. He tried to drown me. He used to beat me up. He would deliberately steal my food. I was a small, underweight, malnourished 11-year-old child, and partly my father insisted on that because pedophiles would pay more for a child that looked younger. Every second weekend, I was allowed to go and see my mother. There, I would sleep the sleep of the dead or cling to her to the point where she would just be frustrated and angry with me. She was so disinterested. I had no safe adult around me at all, ever. My safe haven was at school, was there that I could be me, which meant the traumatized, out of control, terrified, confused child. And so every part of me was screaming for help. I would never leave the school grounds. And in fact, the nuns would have to kick me off as they locked up the gates at night because I didn't want to go home. The only safe adult for me was a nun at school and she was a wonderful woman. She would ask me what's going on. But the threat may have been, if you tell anyone, I will kill your sister or your mother or the dog, then you believe them because you are the child, they are the adult. So it was very unlikely I could ever speak. This is more common than you might think. One day I was coming home from school and it was a half day at school and my father must have forgotten this. He ended up being in the bedroom and as I walked down the hallway I could hear laughing and there was him and a woman in there. And I just froze because my job in his life, as well as being the main sex worker and providing all the money for him, I was also his mistress. He'd moved me into his bedroom when I was left with him in that house. So I walked in and there he is with this naked woman. I just froze and I went into shock and I turned and ran probably five kilometers to where my mother lived. I couldn't speak. I was just sobbing and shaking and crying. She said, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? And for the first time, I said something that she actually listened to. I said, look, he's got a naked woman in there. I thought that job was mine. She said, would you just sit there? I'm going to ring the Archbishop of Auckland. 
He said the following words, which I believe saved my life. Get her out of that house. It's not safe for her to be with an adulterer. From that point, I was euphoric. I was traumatized, but I was euphoric because, yay, I never had to go back, or so I thought. My mother, being the classic narcissist she was, told me after a day, you're going to have to go back and tell him you don't want to live with him anymore. And I said, well, please come with me. I'm so scared. This man's so scary. And she said, no, no, you'll have to go in by yourself. So I had to find courage from I don't know where, deep within to say, I don't want to be with you anymore. He was furious, as you can imagine. But I ran out of there, got into my mother's car and went with her back to her place. On the way back, I said, so I'm going to be with you. Oh, thank you, sir. I never have to see him again. She said, I don't know what you're talking about, but the bishops decided you should go back every second weekend. Being with him two out of 14 days was worse, and the reason is this. For 12 days, I had relative safety. Yes, I was completely ignored. I was not valued or nurtured, but I could cope with that because I was safe. Can you imagine the absolute bone-shattering fear and trauma and the deep level of resilience and courage I had to find to go back to my father for those two days. He certainly made me pay. So that went on from 12 and a half till I was 16. The day I turned 16, I never had to see him again, so I never willingly did. That was the court's decision. My mother, of course, wasn't happy with that, so she tried to pressure me, manipulate me into seeing him, but I couldn't. The 16-year-old was not the same as the 11-year-old who had been left there. I don't know if I'd be alive today if I'd had to keep going. I don't even know how I made it through, but I did. Are you looking for a new podcast to add to your favorites list? Once Upon a Crime is a weekly scripted true crime podcast that tells the story behind the story of a real-life crime. Tune in each week as Esther Ludlow, host of Once Upon a Crime, brings you a new true crime series that is meticulously researched to bring listeners details you won't hear anywhere else. Together, you'll seek to understand the why behind infamous crimes, as well as lesser-known cases. Told in a storytelling style, Esther digs into a different true crime topic each month. Deadly duos, mass murders, tragic deaths of music stars are just some of the series covered on Once Upon a Crime. With over 290 episodes to date and new episodes released every Monday, you'll want to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Look for Once Upon a Crime and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I was dysregulated, I was out of control, I developed a false self, so who you saw in front of you was never the person I actually was. I'd been trained to behave in a certain way and it was always to people please, to entice and to get the most I could for others out of using my personality and my body. So that was just trauma beyond belief. I had no idea of who I was. I was hypervigilant. I was highly anxious. When I was 22, I was just coming out of teacher's training college. And it won't surprise you, 
the age I was drawn to and the age I taught were 11 and 12-year-olds. My whole heart was with them and all I could see was the beauty in them. I didn't think I was a great teacher. I didn't shine in any curriculum area, but the one thing I did, I always focused on the one thing about them that was wonderful and they loved it. Over those years through teaching and loving those kids, I got married for the first time during my 20s. But naturally, I was only ever going to choose people to me that reflected what I'd grown up with. So I didn't choose well. That's the kindest thing I can say. So that marriage ended when I had my second child. In my 30s was when I started the real healing. And I think being a mum is what brings things to the surface for us more and more. I was able to start to make sense of it, start some serious therapy. I'd actually suppressed a lot of the memories, and I'm so grateful I did that because dissociation is where the mind leaves because the body can't. I love that definition of it. So I was dissociated for a lot of those years. In my 30s, all the memories started coming at me. I went to the police when I was 32. They had seven detectives on the case. Unfortunately, the burden of proof could not be met because I was the only family member that said anything. The police decided they couldn't proceed, but they said then, and they still say today, I saw them earlier this year, that they would never have a problem putting me on the stand because I'm telling the truth. It's just obvious, but they couldn't prove it. My father was cunning. My mother, she knew how to work people. She was a narcissist. I can't have a relationship with these people. They destroyed me. Instead of judging people for choosing not to have family in their lives, congratulate them for the courage to not have family in their lives because there's a reason. It was always projected onto us that we were lying or that couldn't possibly have happened because he's such a good guy or she's such an amazing person. It always became us having to prove or justify or explain this abuse occurred. No surprise then that as adults, the same thing occurs. If you don't have family in your life, if you choose not to spend time with people who enabled the abuse by doing nothing to help you, we call it DAVOD, denied, attacked, reverse the order of victim and offender. And this is what happens when a survivor finds their words It's denied, no, he's a wonderful man or she's amazing. They would never have done that. Attack your credibility or mental health. Suddenly the order's reversed and they become the victim and you become the offender. Very clever. It worked back in the 90s. It's working today very well for these people. And of course, when I took it to my family, they did that whole Davode. They accused me of false memory syndrome. I was called evil, manipulated, deluded, a liar. I just knew the truth was the truth. So in the end, I had to end a relationship with these people because I didn't deserve to be called that. My father passed. My mother's alive. I lost my mother four times throughout my adult life because I kept trying to go to her and say, Mom, this happened. We need to talk about this. And she just kept saying, if you bring this up again, I can't be in your life. I can accept who you are, but I will not accept that. That is not the truth. So basically, if I was to cut off that part of me that experienced all the abuse, 
I could have a mother again. But I realised I couldn't keep knocking at a door that wouldn't open. I was not welcome in her life. What they hadn't counted on was that the light within me couldn't be put out. So that's what I'm here to do, is my whole purpose now is to help others by shining the light on this. I think being a teacher showed me my love of children and my feeling that children needed to be valued. Then I decided I wanted to train as a child and adolescent psychotherapist. I wanted to understand how children thought and how we could work best with children. So of course, healer, heal thyself without really fully understanding what I was doing. Can I ask if the onset of that realization and awakening happened around the same time your children were the ages that you experienced the abuse? Yes, that is often the way. It can be either the same sex child or the youngest or the eldest child at a certain age is what can trigger us into remembering. I had told people about the abuse earlier than the memories, but I had suppressed that as well. I'd told someone when I was 19 what had happened. I'd told people at school, but I had forgotten all of that. The horror for me, the worst time in my adult life, was those memories because I relived it. No one wants to relive that type of horror. Although hugely triggering for me, I was able to do a lot with children, adolescents and their families because I understood more than people knew what trauma looked like and what children needed. The reason I love CBT is because I was trained as a psychotherapist and all due respect to the profession, it's very much you sit in the passenger seat and watch the client or patient drive. To be honest, most parents, adults, don't have time or money to spend years doing that. Usually people want some quick tips, tricks, techniques, tools, give me something to try then I feel like I can work with something. So that's all I did. I just developed my own style of what are the issues? What are you noticing? I would then do some observing and then come back with some techniques to try. Cognitive behavioral therapy is basically mastering a behavior or modifying a behavior in small incremental ways that are manageable, correct? 100%. If you want to walk 10 kilometers, start with 100 meters. The next day, do 150. How is cognitive behavioral therapy something that worked for you? Are there any other modalities or therapies or even resources or tools or exercises that really worked for you? It's been a 25 to 30 year journey for me, which is why I'm so grateful I'm healed enough now to give back with confidence and humility. It took me decades and decades of therapy and It was two years ago when I published the memoir about these 16 years. And it took me until then to really hold my head up high and say, I'm proud of who I am today. I made it through. But what I found really helped me was exercise because I could release the stress through running or going to the gym and meditation. Those two really helped me deeply on my journey. Talking therapy helped the cognitive behaviorals. Things like breath work. Survivors were often with our shoulders up here and we're not taking deep breaths. So just breathing in deeply really worked for me. Reiki was great. Therapeutic massage was great. I also had a very deep spiritual component. 
Now, I don't mean organized religion. I mean in terms of spirituality for me. I always had angels around me. It's how I partly got through, and I always found the light. I always found myself looking for light on angels' wings as my memoir because had I not had them, I wouldn't be here. I love writing. I'm a bit of a writer, it turns out. My second book, Flight Path to Healing, is full of all of the things I used and tried, and it's actually a flight path for survivors, and it's a working book. There's exercises in there. There's mantras in there. There's things they can do in there that really help to shift and lift. My third book's due for publication next month. I found the writing very cathartic. I found the memoir took me three years to write that and seven drafts of it. But I'm proud of it. It's truth. It's raw. It's real. People tell me it's changed their lives. The reason they say that is because it's such an eye-opener. The reality is it was hard for me because I had threats made against me. I had people trying to manipulate me. I'm talking about family. And it became very difficult for me to continue. Apart from all the writing I'm doing, I also provide each week some tips for survivors. Just a 90-second, two-minute clip, and it could be on a simple thing like a boundary or cognitive dissonance or how to tell people that don't know your story if you're needing to share. So I find every week if I give people just a little soundbite like that, it's just enough. It's an adult construct, actually, that children should talk. No, children won't. They will show us. That's partly why I've released a hand signal for children to show they're not safe when they're being abused. The global hand signal I released on the 16th of June is simply putting your palm straight up in the air, folding your thumb across the middle and closing your fist. And it's simply for children under 16 to use if they are being abused, trafficked or not safe. This hand signal was first designed in 2021 by women in North America who were being domestically abused and they were in lockdown and they couldn't get out. So they pretend to talk on Facebook and get recipes, but they were actively doing this. Then police could go and get them out. When I went to release a hand signal, I created something different and a friend reached out and said, no, use this one. It is well known and they're starting to teach it in schools in North America. So that's what I'm doing. The reason I'm asking parents and teachers and everybody to use this hand signal is because you could have children in your classroom, and I so wish I'd had this as a kid. If I could have done this without saying a word, used this hand signal, someone may have picked up what I was putting down. If you are a parent or an adult and you see a child do that, If you don't quite know what to do, take a photo of either the child or the location or the number plate and go and ring the police or approach them with another adult, distract the adult with the child and try and talk to the child. Do something with that hand signal. It's already being used. We know that a child has been saved. I am running a charity which is now just over a year old called Handing the Shame Back. We finally can speak. We're handing the shame back because it never belonged to us. 
that charity is dedicated to up to one in three adult survivors of child sexual abuse throughout the world. And through that charity, we are able to provide resources and support for beautiful survivors out there. Something in me rose up and I've been guided to do this work. I'm meant to be doing this. If not me, then who? I wrote the memoir that's got a lot of attention across the world. It's had a lot of views. Now, I only do this because I want to bring attention to not just my story and to give hope to others, but also because there are so many out there who are struggling and feel they can't hold their heads up. And I just want to say, yes, you can, you beautiful person. Is there anyone who's listening who might be unparenting themselves? or transcending familial trauma and breaking cycles, what pieces of wisdom or pieces of hope would you impart with them? A few things. One, what is for you will find you. And what I mean by that is you might get a little knowing or a bit of an instinctual, I need to do this, and then ignore it. If we ignore what we should be doing, it'll start with a nudge, it might end up with a slap, and eventually the tsunami's going to hit. So my first piece of advice is pay attention to what starts to nudge you, trust your instinct. There is always a way through. I think the light within you is just waiting to shine. And if someone chose to put that out because of their childhood trauma they inflicted on you, that doesn't mean you cannot reignite. I think it's just trusting yourself, believing in yourself and have your own back. Too often, I think what happens is we give our power away to outside of ourselves, to someone's louder voice or more dominant personality. Start to turn it around and go within. Listen. I'd love to see survivors get given the autonomy. I run a YouTube channel called Handing the Shame Back. I interview a survivor every week on that show. At the beginning of that interview, off here, I say to the survivor, I see you, I stand beside you, and I believe you. If at the end of this interview you are not happy for this to be published, you have my word it won't be. Why, they ask, because you never had a choice as a child, and I want to give you one. For media interviewing survivors or people who have been traumatized, there should be some trauma-informed training provided. I have been interviewed by people who have been incredible, much like yourself, Amy, who clearly understand boundaries, respect, and have empathy, genuinely. Equally, I've been awarded by voyeuristic, selfish, and uneducated, who will ask questions about what the impact on the body is and could I go into personal detail around the genitalia and describe in detail the first rape. Really? Who does that help? That is just titillation or voyeurism. For anyone who's experienced trauma, we need to feel respected and above all, we need to feel safe. So I think If you are not educated in terms of trauma interviewing, get educated or make sure you send your questions through first, for the love of God. I've heard some terrible interviews happen and then seen the impact on survivors, actually. The number one thing is we are dealing with unsafe 
traumatised people. The opposite of that is safety, boundaries, a feeling of nurturing or calm, allowing people to hold the baton and have the power. They never had it as kids. Let's give it to them, please. Let's not underestimate the absolute dedication, commitment and the cost to me of trying to heal from this. It's taken decades of work. To the day I die, there will be an impact, of course, on me. But the good news is there's always hope. Um, just grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gloria, for giving me your time, your effort, your knowledge. Unfortunately, your expertise that's developed and your power. Thank you for sharing that with me. According to the Department of Health Services, human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. Every year, millions of men, women, and children are trafficked worldwide. As the Department of Health Services explains, it can happen in any community and victims can be any age, race, gender, or nationality. Traffickers might use violence, coercion, false promises, and even close romantic or familial relationships as methods to lure victims into trafficking situations. There are different types of trafficking, which is determined by what sort of labor the trafficked individual is forced to do. The types include sex trafficking, forced labor, and domestic servitude. For more information on human trafficking and ways to identify and prevent it, please visit the Department of Health Services link in our episode notes. And to report suspected human trafficking to federal law enforcement, please dial 1-866-347-2423. That's 1-866-347-2423. For information about how and where to file a report of suspected child abuse or neglect, visit the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline. Child Help can be reached seven days a week, 24 hours a day, at its toll-free number 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-422-4453. For more educational information and preventative measures, please visit the Something Was Wrong feed and listen to Season 17, Episode 7, entitled Data Points, Child Abuse. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I've never talked about in depth my mother, the death, and him being on death row and all these things until last year. It has been so interesting to kind of switch conversations and also navigate between the sexual assault, the harm, the mental health, trauma, and never really about the originator of where it all began. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.